Let's pray for Linda as she brings God's word to us this morning. Father, we thank you that we are your children and that we are found in you. And we pray for Linda this morning, Father, that she would take the thoughts and meditations that you've placed on her heart and mind and reveal them to us this morning, that we would learn from your word and from the words that you would have us receive. Equip her by your Holy Spirit now, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, yes, it was refreshing. We went to Centre Parks for the week and um, with our two families, which entails um, four small children under four. Uh, I was about to say I remember it well, but actually I never had four small children under four at one time, so it was a bit different, but it was a lot of fun, especially the pool. I can highly recommend it. But if you're going with grandchildren, get your own chalet is the answer, I think. (laughs) Don't be tempted to share. Well, good morning. It's good to be here. Last week, if you remember, we celebrated Education Sunday and we reflected upon the transformative power of education in the lives of young people. So this week, it seems quite appropriate that our gospel passage from Matthew chapter 5 should be focusing on Jesus' role as teacher and on his teaching ministry, which was intended to transform not just the lives of his followers, but through them as his agents of transformation, the whole earth. Big agenda. But chapters 5 to 7 of Matthew's Gospel are known as the Sermon on the Mount because this was the big agenda. This section carefully sets out the main themes of Jesus' proclamation of good news. And it's fair to say that the message of Jesus' teaching was revolutionary and it was countercultural for his day, but it was also consistent with all that had gone before as those latter verses in um, the section we read say. The big agenda is summed up in chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, in the words of the Beatitudes. And you might find it helpful to have your Bibles open at page 916 um, as we look at these verses together. It's probably significant that Matthew placed this section immediately after the calling of the named disciples in chapter 4, and as they were joined by others from among the large crowds. For Jesus' teaching in these three chapters was primarily directed at his disciples, not at the large crowds. In effect, he escapes the large crowds who are captivated and entranced by his miracles of healing. And Jesus goes up the mountainside, taking with him those who are willing to sit at his feet and learn what it really means to be a committed and faithful follower. In the Beatitudes, named after the Latin word for blessed, beatus, Jesus begins the long process of explaining what it means to be a beloved and blessed child of God. what it means to live out a human life with all its challenges and its losses, with all its hurts and its injustices. And yet, in the midst of all this, 
still experiencing God's constant presence and purpose in their lives, knowing the kingdom of heaven as a day-by-day reality here and now. And the kingdom of heaven is a term that we find repeated throughout Matthew's gospel, and this particular passage is packed with it as well. Tom Wright, one of our uh, best modern New Testament scholars, explains that we miss the point if we think that heaven is a future concept. Heaven, he says, is God's space where full reality exists, close by our ordinary earthly reality and interlocking with it. In other words, heaven isn't something in the future only. Heaven is something in the here and now. And we know this because Jesus constantly talked about the kingdom of heaven being closer than you think, the kingdom of heaven being with us, the kingdom of heaven being here. So in this early teaching to his disciples, Jesus is setting out God's manifesto, which is the life of heaven in the here and now. In other words, the life of the realm where God is already king is to become the life of this world, transforming, to use a buzzword, the present earth so that it becomes the place of beauty and delight that God always intended. But that's not all. Jesus invites his followers to be God's agents in this process of transformation, living transformative lives that will help to recreate their own time and place. And they have a role in bringing God's promised future into the here and now, precisely because Jesus comes from eternity to share human time and space. And in a few chapters' time, we shall see Matthew recording how Jesus gave them a prayer to use as part of this process. It was called the Lord's Prayer. We say it every week. But how much do we believe it when we say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Well, all manifestos or big agendas benefit from some images or illustrations or metaphors which help them to come alive, which help to bring alive their values or make their ideals more concrete. And like any good teacher, Jesus picks a couple of ordinary images as simple illustrations of what kingdom living actually looks like in practice. The first is salt and the second is light. Ordinary, everyday, familiar things that can make a big difference to our daily lives, but which perhaps we take too easily for granted. Let's look at salt first. We know that salt has a number of remarkable properties, some of which are perhaps less familiar to us nowadays than they were to our ancestors. In Jesus' day, and in many centuries down the ages, before the invention of refrigeration technology, salt was a preservative. 
capable of preventing decay so that meat and other foodstuffs could be kept long-term and eaten without risk to health. But salt also has a powerful medicinal and healing quality, as I vividly recall when I had all four wisdom teeth out in my 20s. And instead of antiseptic solution, which can be quite expensive, my dentist said, no, 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 just a few warm salt mouthwashes will do the trick to protect your gums. And they did. He was right. And interestingly, the book of Ezekiel refers to salt being rubbed onto a newborn baby as part of postnatal care procedures, a sort of Old Testament call the midwife thing, I think. And there are other Old Testament passages that mention salt as a key element to worship. For the Israelite people, salt was offered with the offerings. It symbolized the people's covenant relationship with God. And a covenant sealed by salt in the ancient world was believed to be an everlasting promise. And if you Google salt covenant, you'll find that it's still used in marriage ceremonies in some parts of the world today. So we, there are lots of properties we already are familiar with, and we could probably have an interesting discussion here about the extent to which Christians are called to be like salt, preserving the good and preventing corruption, or to be agents of healing or models of faithfulness. And we might learn much from such a study. But I wonder if these are actually the properties of salt that Jesus was referring to when he told his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. For of course the most common use of salt down the centuries and across the cultures of the world has been as a condiment the use of salt for seasoning food to enhance its flavour, to make dishes taste better so they are more pleasurable to eat. And in these verses from Matthew's Gospel and in the parallel accounts in Mark and Luke, this seems to be the main point of Jesus' choice of this illustration. So perhaps the question we should really be thinking about and asking ourselves today in light of this passage is, do Christians, do we, make the world taste better? Is life more flavoursome around us? Through our words and our actions, do we enhance the flavour of our time and our place in such a way that others remark positively on the quality of the cuisine? and maybe seek a second helping. Does being with us seem anything like enjoying a good meal? Or do others sometimes tend to find our presence and company a bit insipid, bland, or worse still, too salty, never to be tried again? When reflecting on some of these questions, I found myself starting to think about the nature of hospitality and especially the quality of hospitality from us as Christians and from us as a church family. What is the quality 
of our hospitality. In many cultural traditions, it's interesting that salt is actually an essential element of hospitality. In Russia, for example, where this picture comes from, and in many other Slavic countries, there's a traditional ceremony involving a loaf of bread and a small cup of salt being brought out across the threshold of a home on a tray to welcome visitors to the house. It symbolizes the offer of hospitality and protection on the part of the host. From the moment that the guest enters until they leave. Interesting, isn't it, that Jesus too often used a loaf of bread by way of illustration. And we shall see that later as we gather around the table and share a loaf of bread together, investing it with all sorts of symbolism about what it means to share table fellowship together and to welcome others to that table. So what is the quality of our hospitality as a church and as individuals? How do we welcome people into our homes and into our church building? How do we encourage them to feel comfortable, to feel at home, to feel safe and unthreatened rather than manipulated or even judged? How are our Christian welcome and our hospitality expressed and reflected through things like the sort of language we use and the way we behave? The accessibility of our buildings and our custom. The level of attention that we pay to the guests' needs rather than our own needs. Now, I certainly don't want to be misunderstood as seeming to be critical of the way that we welcome guests, whether it's into our homes or into our church, but it's always worth reflecting on how others might perceive or experience a welcome when they visit us for the first time, especially in our church context. This is a, a beautiful open, spacious, welcoming building, but it's still possible to walk through our church doors and not to feel welcomed. So when people come to your home or into our church home, what will they perceive? Will they be able to perceive Jesus in our midst? And be attracted to draw closer, to come back, to hear more, to try a second helping? Or will they find the dish that we offer rather bland or too salty? Do you and I, do we make the world taste a better place? Because if we don't, and there's always a risk that we don't, we're not much use for anything, and certainly not the vocation to which Jesus has called us. 
The other illustration that Jesus uses to get his point across is light. And the properties of light are well known. Light can dispel the darkness and banish gloom in the warmth of candlelight. Torchlight can help illuminate the pathway to give direction. The light of a lighthouse can warn of dangers that lie ahead and need to be avoided. And in this passage, Jesus seems to be focusing on a particular type of light. It's the oil lamp that would have been placed in every Jewish home and looked something like this. It's a lamp that would have been kept alight at all times on a lamp stand in the middle of the home. And it would have given light to all in the house. Except when people went out and left the building unattended. Now the fire service would advise that you don't do this. You don't go out and leave the light or the lamp alight. But in Jesus' day... It was not such a straightforward thing. If you extinguished the flame of the lamp, it was difficult to rekindle it. Matches were not available. And so to avoid the problem, the family would take the oil lamp off the lampstand, still alight, and place it under an earthenware vessel. A vessel made out of clay, that was designed for measuring out grain or other dry goods, a bushel measure. And in that way, rather cleverly, the lamp could continue to burn safely until it was needed again. But that wasn't the primary purpose of the lamp. The primary purpose of the lamp was to burn brightly and to be seen and give light bringing illumination to dark corners, enabling accidents in the home to be prevented and offering a beacon of hope to weary or lost travellers outside on the road. Once again, in our 21st century, where electric light is available 24-7 at the flick of a switch, I suspect we've lost a full understanding of the power of a single lamp shining in the darkness. I've always found it very moving that Mary Robinson, who was the first president of the Irish Republic, kept just such a lamp alight throughout the night on the windowsill of her presidential residence for all to see throughout the years of her presidency. Why did she do it? Well, she did it to reflect an ancient tradition in rural Ireland, a tradition which involved placing a lit candle in a cottage window. At night, in the darkness of the countryside, such a light could be a beacon of hope to a lost or weary traveller. And it might even mean the difference between life and death. And Mary Robinson attempted to do something which would be powerfully symbolic, not just for those who passed by, 
and who saw it. But for many others in the Irish diaspora around the world, that they would know there was a light of homecoming welcoming them back to safety, to security, to family. Now God had called his people Israel to be just such a light, to be the light of the world for the revealing of God's saving power to all nations. Israel was to be that light bearer, shining God's light into dark places and enabling people to find their way home to God and to true worship. But sadly, God's chosen people hadn't done a great job down the centuries and had largely failed in this task. Jerusalem, the city on the hill, was supposed to be a beacon of hope to the world, but it too succumbed to the darkness. And so God embarked on a new way of revealing himself to the world through the human face of Jesus Christ, his beloved son. Jesus is the light of the world now. And yet, fascinatingly, Jesus says in this passage to his disciples, you are the light of the world. How can that be? Jesus is the light of the world. No, he says, you are the light of the world. He invites us to share the life of God so that we too may be a part of the process of revelation and recreation, the process of transformation. And Matthew's gospel shows in these sayings and in other parts that those truths that were originally applied to the people of Israel, Jesus took and reapplied to his first disciples. And they still apply to us today, here and now, in this time and place, in this neighborhood and community. So, Jesus calls us to be salt and light in this world, and not to do it by ourselves, but to draw on him, on his life as the source. He is the light of the world. He is also the salt of the earth, preserving, redeeming, healing, modeling faithfulness, as well as giving flavor. So the question is, where and how is God calling each of us as disciples of Jesus to be salt and light in his world this week? Now, I don't know the answer to that for you. I have some ideas about the answer for me. But to help us discern what it means in practice for each of us and to encourage you to be attentive to God's call on your life this week, I'd like to invite you to take away a small visual aid at the end of the service. And as you leave today, 
there will be baskets at both sets of doors containing sachets of salt and some small candles. And I'd like to invite you to feel free to take away with you one or both or neither of these items. Put them in your pocket or in your purse or in your Bible or on a shelf in your home, or on the car dashboard. Somewhere where you'll catch sight of them from time to time. And as you catch sight of them, ask God to help you recognize opportunities to be salt and light in his world over this coming week. And my prayer is that you may be surprised and encouraged at what he shows you. Amen.